Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we welcome Jim Sperlino, author of Business Bullseye, Take Aim and Achieve Great Success. Jim, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mark. Glad to have you here. Love the book. I really enjoyed it. As I mentioned to you before we got started, that's a very practical book with great examples. Would you give the audience a little bit about your background? Sure. I was um, uh, a a typical college student uh, working my way through college, got a job at a a local industrial company and uh, worked there through my uh, bachelor's and my MBA and then continued for a total of 15 years there before I started my own company. And um, um, the first of a a few uh, to start my serial entrepreneur life myself. And why did you write this book? You know, Mark, I wrote this book because I I feel like I've read every major business book for the last 30 plus years. And I've enjoyed a lot of them and I've learned a lot. But they tended to be mostly from either a Fortune 500 former CEO or a business consultant like McKinsey & Company or an academic. I didn't really feel like there was a book out there written uh, for me or my peers as much in in pretty readable, plain English. And and so that's why I undertook it. I really wanted to write a book uh, for my peers, medium and small businesses. I have to tell you, when I read the book, I I related to everything you wrote from myself running so many different businesses. You know, like you read these things, oh, my God, that happened to me, too. Um, so I really enjoyed it for that reason. Why did you select the metaphor of the bullseye, which implies perfection? I, I think of it as provide, you know, uh, really talking about precision as much as perfection. And, and perfection, we all know, is a difficult thing. We all may aim for perfection, but I really found over my career that that myself and a lot of my peers lacked much precision in their goal setting, in their strategies, in the direction of their company. And, and I really found that that was an, uh, an underlying current that, that uh, continued to contribute to my success, was making sure that we had the appropriate amount of precision and well-defined uh, targets and bullseyes that would lead our company and, and help us all grow in the same direction, essentially. Um, how do you define your target that vary regarding what aspect of the business you're talking about? Because you have different targets throughout the book. And so how do you uh, how do you define your target that vary regarding depending on what it is you're focused on? Yeah, you know, and it varies depending on what you focus on. And there's certainly, you know, parts of our businesses that, uh, you know, whether it's sales or marketing, operations, finance, there's parts that can have some pretty precise definition of what a bullseye might be. And there's other parts that don't. And and believe me, in our company, um, we didn't uh, shy away from, you know, occasionally proceeding without a lot of precision, but as much as possible with the information we could gather, uh, we wanted to make sure that we we had as precise uh, a bullseye defined as possible. Uh, and sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it it is uh, something you got to get started with before you start to hone in on what it might exactly be. But the the real, just to give you a, a the the uh, kind of a, an example that's I don't like is when somebody would do something like with a goal and say, well, we want to do better than last year, or we want to improve our quality ten percent. And to me, those are those are almost meaningless types of goals unless there is some precision backing up. Uh, whatever that 10% is or that better is. And that's what I found helped me and my company uh, do a better job of hitting those those bullseyes. So what do you mean by that with the uh, the precision? Give me an example. So so particularly, uh, I think there's an example in the book about sales. 
and and rather than I think I think many of us have had these times where we we've said well we want to we want to uh, increase sales by ten percent and exactly how are you going to do that and so so I would drive my vice president of sales to talk about things like well what what particular segment of the market are we talking about and what product mix are we talking about and and come to understand what exactly contributes to a 10% increase in sales. So we would say it's going to be our commercial uh, segment versus industrial or residential or heavy and highway. And I'd say it was going to be these types of products, all of our high strength products, because that's where our higher margins were. When you start to have that kind of precision, uh, you also get your management team to start talking about, well, why, why are we doing this? Where, where is this going to lead us? How is this going to contribute value to the company? And so it not only helps you hit those bullseyes, but it also helps you understand uh, more about the reasoning and the underlying foundation that they're being built on. You know what? I think that uh, makes a lot of sense because all too often people say, let's, uh, they always have these, you know, uh, for sales, oh, we're going to move sales up by 10%, but there's no backing about how you're actually going to go get there. I always found that a lot with McKinsey consultants that we would deal with. And they would have these um, set these goals, and I'd say, "Well, right, well, walk me through about what's that going to take to actually get that goal, and is that even achievable, or what kind of assets do we need to make that actually happen?" So I'm sure that's part of what you guys talk about when you're figuring out how you're going to achieve that, right? Absolutely, and also it also gets you to do a better critical analysis of what. Uh, what it takes to get to that target, and and also what what else may go on while you're trying to achieve that. So you know, and for instance, increasing sales ten percent that's one thing. I've had a salesman say, "I think we could take ten percent more market share," and be like, "Great, tell me how we're going to do that." And he might go through a reasonable uh, you know explanation of that, but in the end, you've also got to talk about well, what does that do to the market? What are my what's my competition going to do? What are my comp? What are my, uh, what are my customers going to say? What are my are my suppliers going to help out in this? There's all kind of other things that go along with uh, these these crazy just kind of blanket goals that get you know get uh, bannered about. A hundred percent. You you write there's a three stool uh, three stool of essential knowledge that every business leader needs to know. What is it? Yeah, so so the three-legged stool I talk about, and we all know what happens when you have a three-legged stool and one leg doesn't work or isn't there. It falls over and you fall on your face. And so what I found was I, I you know, as I talked about in my background, I had gone through and got my business degree and got my MBA, and that's not for everybody. It's not needed by everybody, but that was something that, you know, in, in my life plan and career plan, I thought was important. And so that was that kind of academic knowledge, understanding. Uh, you know, uh, finance terms and accounting terms and sales and marketing. And um, and then the second leg uh, is an understanding about the industry. And, um, you know, we all may uh, look at a, a company and we say, that looks like fun, or I enjoy this product, so I want to be in this business. And uh, But you really need to understand the industry and how it functions and what were the, the critical paths to success are in those industries. And then the last part, the third leg, maybe the most important leg is understanding your own company, the knowledge about your own company, what are its capacities? You know, where do you have good experience? Where are you, where are you lacking knowledge? Where do you need to improve? And, and particularly thinking about that in terms of where do I wanna go with my company? And if I'm gonna grow my company, you know, what kind of uh, capacity do I have within my own management, within my own, uh, maybe even physical, uh, structure, phys- uh, physical uh, capabilities, uh, but those are those three legs. So it's you know it's that academic knowledge, it's the industry knowledge, and it's the knowledge about your own company. Um, if you were working for a large company but aspire to be an entrepreneur, how do you get your company to rotate you through different positions? Uh, and if you don't do it, what? How do you make that happen for yourself? Because I think a lot of people who get involved in a large company level and say, you know what, I just don't like all the politics and everything else. I want to do my own thing. But you're so siloed in large companies. I, and you yourself, before you became an entrepreneur, worked for you know, a reasonable size, I guess, small to mid-sized private equity company. 
Yeah, actually, the company uh, that I worked for was uh, the, the largest construction materials company in the state of Ohio and, and had reach outside of the state as well. Um, and I can only speak from my own experiences as, as a, uh, you know, young college kid starting there. I did almost every job, you know, seemed like in the company. Uh, but the one thing I think that helped a lot was I, I absolutely tried to do, you know, more than my own job. Uh, so whenever I got the chance, I always uh, tried to learn more about other parts of the company, go help somebody else. So for the most part, I came up through operations, but it never stopped me from, uh, you know, spending time with the salesman and trying to understand what our customers wanted and how I could make a salesman's job easier. It didn't stop me from talking to our controller and understanding, you know, uh, what makes his job easier as far as getting into numbers and reports and so forth. And I think, you know, making yourself more than just your own job. And, and showing that kind of interest. And, and we all know, I think, as CEOs, when you start to see somebody that's got some ambition and motivation, I mean, we eat that stuff up. We love people like that. Yeah, of course. Uh, no question about it. Uh, did you write a business plan? And if so, what did it consist of? And was it just financials or did you write a marketing and sales plan? Because oftentimes when you ask people about business plans, they think it's just a financial spreadsheet, uh, but they don't really think about, hey, there needs to be a marketing and sales plan and competitive analysis. So what did you do? Well, I was some combination of, of uh, completely scared to death and, and totally determined to get my company, my brand new company started. So I wrote a fairly complex or fairly complete, not complex, but complete business plan. And it, did, it had all the financials and the pro formas. And I by the way, I learned later in my career that uh, from from the bankers that I was doing business with that they, you know, they they basically said, "Hey, we've seen a ton of entrepreneurs, and we take their business plan and, and cut it by about forty percent, and figure their break even years is about you know twice as far out as they think it is, and so forth." So I, but I crunched the numbers pretty hard. That was something I I was comfortable with. But I also did a complete uh, a sales. Um, uh, plan. I did a complete market study analysis. I did a competitive analysis of the folks that I was going to compete against. I did an analysis of the supply chain. Um, so I, I tried, you know, to cover all those bases um, because I really didn't want to go in and talk to bankers and and look like I I hadn't, uh, you know, touched on every key aspect of starting that business. Uh, did you also have outside equity investors? I did. I had a, a small amount of uh, outside initial investors, um, which was this was back in 2000. And, and um, it, it was certainly a time when banks, I think, were uh, uh, fairly flexible compared to today in lending. Um, and but we did need some some equity. And of course, I, you know, like a lot of a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, when they start their own business, I had my had everything I owned mortgaged and pledged and everything else, but I but I did have a, a, a couple uh, a small number of partners. And, and how did you manage to convince them? Were they people who understood the business that you were in, uh, or were they outsiders that really didn't know but they believed in you? So, so there was uh, there was essentially uh, two different types. So one was some uh, two folks that knew knew me and knew the industry uh, from a a human resource consulting perspective and had worked for me at my previous employer for about 10 years. And so they had a pretty good understanding of the business. And, and of course, um, I think they believed in me. The other set was uh, really um, uh, folks that I met through friends uh, that had uh, experience in investing in startups. And so they were kind of more traditional uh, you know, uh, venture capital-ish uh, private investors. Well, we have quite a few folks who listen to this podcast who are entrepreneurs raising capital. Uh, how did it turn out with your investors? I mean, was that a good experience for you having them or would you do it differently? I don't know how well this will go over with your audience, but I my my experience over my career was uh, not particularly great with partners. Um, and, and I came to believe through a number of businesses that I started and had partners that uh, as much as possible, if you can um, uh, minimize or eliminate partners, I would advise it. Um, and and it really comes down to, uh, I don't know that 
many of us that start our own companies know our partners or our investors as well as we should, and maybe never can know them as well as we should. And they're never probably going to be completely aligned uh, with our own uh, vision of what the company is and where it's going. And so um, uh, I had a couple bad experiences with partners. I came out of it very well. I was I was lucky in that perspective, but I, I really learned that I think looking back on it, I, I may have thought about taking more time, maybe even taking a year or more and trying to have fewer partners uh, because um, uh, there's usually uh, more bad things that can come out of partnerships blowing up than good things. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. I've been through some partnerships uh, as well. I had a, um, a partner that was amazing and we're still very close. And I had a partner that I thought was going to be great and he wasn't very hardworking. And I was carrying the ball most all the days to the point where the investor said we would back it if it was just you and he would just leave him and turn back his equity. But they weren't going to go uh, continue to support this knowing that he was going to benefit from it. I mean, they were so angry about his lack of um, professionalism and hard work into the venture. You sold your business during a period of consolidation. Many owners feel the business is like their child, so they feel too strong an attachment to sell. What's your perspective on this? That's crazy. <laughs> that is absolutely crazy. And, um, you know, I love my business. I started it from scratch. We had no customers, no employees. I had it for 17 years before I sold it. Um, but, uh, you know, it was for 17 years, it was um, the biggest asset I owned personally. And for most of that time, for the vast majority of that time, it was 90 plus percent of my personal net worth. And, uh, that is a, a crazy, uh, definition of diversification with your investments or your personal net worth. To have it piled into one place like that um, without maybe a little more control or a little bit more thought about how am I going to um, do a better job for my personal investment that includes this big monster uh, one piece of it that's this company. Uh, one of the uh, listeners asked, how valuable do you find networking in accomplishing your goals? Oh, I, I think invaluable. Um, I, I, uh, I can remember from very early on, you know, making a big point of, uh, making sure I was at every industry function there was and, and made sure it was not just my industry, but my customer's industry. And, um, I, I know I would bet, uh, the majority of the time I would go to those meetings or conferences uh, with dread in my mind that this is going to be uh, this is going to be boring. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a waste of time, and uh, n- I never failed to come away, you know, with one important contact I made, one person that you know I met that was you know invaluable for the rest of my career or was valuable at a, that particular time. And so, um, you know, all I can say is that that uh, uh, networking, however you might define it, and I don't know that it's going to every chamber of commerce cocktail hour there is, but however you however you best can determine where to spend a decent amount of your time making sure that you come into contact with people that are going to be important, either your business to, to, to your outlook on where my company is going to go to a new opportunity, a new venture. I think those are extremely important. I met some of the uh, you know, most important people in my life in those circumstances, almost by chance. And, and that's what you do. You make your own luck. I found the same thing. You wrote about goal setting and you talked about it a little bit earlier. What are the most important goals you set and who is involved in setting those goals? Like, you know, who, what members on your team are involved in that? So, so um, answer your first question, the most important goals I know that we always set we're always around building sustainable value in our company. So that whether that was a competitive edge uh, of some sort, whether that was a uh, investment in a better product that our competitors may not be able to match, whether it was making sure we were the low cost producer, whatever that was, it was, it was always looking for sustainable value generated for the company, not just another sale. Um, as, as far as who was involved in that goal setting, I had a, I had a fairly small team. I, I kind of stick to that rule of thumb that 
you probably should only have, say, seven or eight direct reports that can vary in an industry, can obviously go up and down. But I was pretty comfortable with making sure I had quality people in, in generally six or seven spots. And you had to have them all buy in, you know, whether it, it really seemed like it was part of their department or their area of responsibility. You had to have them all buy in because you wanted to make sure everybody was supportive of that goal and let them find ways to help achieve that goal, whether it was a direct part of their responsibility or not. Uh, why did you have hesitations about forming an advisory board when you created a peer group? And, and what's the difference and how did that help? Uh, so for uh, a long time, uh, we operated the company just with uh, the board of directors meetings was, uh, you know, me shaving in the morning, looking in the mirror. And uh, uh, they were pretty efficient and uh, they were always unanimous votes. So that was nice. Um, but I knew I wasn't getting, uh, you know, I, knew I wasn't getting all the good inputs I could get. And um, uh, I had uh, a lot of strong recommendations to form some sort of board of advisors. And, and what I saw most of the time when small and medium companies did that is they invite their accountant, their attorney, you know, their, their best friend, their biggest investor, and then they all sit and have a meeting. And I don't know that that's ever occurred to me as being something really valuable. And um, so I came, I came upon through an industry meeting an industry association, a national industry association meeting, a, uh, a an outside firm, a consulting firm that uh, had a couple, had two peer groups, two national peer groups, and they had an opening in one. And uh, they call these groups different things in different industries, but there's there's a ton of them out there. Um, and what it essentially is is there was typically eight or nine of us. In, a, in this peer group, and we were all the same. We were literally peers. We were CEOs of construction materials companies. And we varied from uh, the smallest one was probably 15 million in sales to the largest one uh, was probably uh, just under a billion and, and was a, a nationally uh, publicly traded company, but he was the president of that division. And uh, but we all had the same job. And, um, and, and having that perspective from across the country um, and, and having the advice of, of peers like that, that understood my job, understood my industry. And the biggest part was they held me accountable, unlike my attorney or my accountant would, because I pay my attorney and my accountant. And while they may give me advice that's contrary to what I'm thinking, they do it in such a way that probably keeps them on the payroll, so to speak. But my peer group, would hold me unbelievably accountable. We, I would tell them I had a problem with, you know, uh, with my vice president, uh, you know, finance. And three months later in the next meeting, when I hadn't fired them, they would be all over me for stuff like that. And so the accountability part was awesome because they understood exactly my job and they understood my challenges. And then most of the time they had insight to understand, uh, you know, maybe some of my weaknesses. Uh, what was the group you belonged to? Was it a national group? Uh, yeah, we were from literally from uh, the, the furthest east was Massachusetts and the furthest west was California, down to Texas, over in North Carolina, up Ohio, Detroit. And so we were all over the country and it was run by uh, a consulting firm that does a lot of consulting for our industry. Okay. Uh, we've had authors talk about culture. A lot of authors talk about culture. And you wrote it was the biggest success factor for you. Why do you say that? And what was the culture you developed? It was, first of all, culture was a big reason why I started my own company. I wasn't particularly happy with um, the culture at the company I was at, at my previous employer. And, and not that it was a bad culture or toxic or anything like that. It just wasn't as high performing as I thought we could be. And so when we started the company, I hired uh, our first uh, four managers, uh, senior managers, right off the bat, they were my first four employees. And we started talking about, you know, this is brand new. We can do anything we want. And how do we want our company to be? How do we want all of our employees to act? How do we want to carry out business? How do we want customers to feel about us? And and that's where the culture of the company started. We, we started, uh, uh, you know, developing those values. 
uh, very early on. And, and what I found, why I think culture is so important is oftentimes culture will do your job for you. So if you can, if you can instill in your employees their, the values that you have, they're going to know how they're supposed to carry out their work. They're going to know how they're supposed to treat each other. They're going to know how to treat a customer. They're going to know how far they can go and how far they shouldn't go for you. And so it, it creates it creates almost synergy beyond one plus one equals two. It creates more synergy within your company's capacity to do things because people all believe and think the same way. And, and that that's a powerful thing. Um, you wrote about not being an advocate of internal competition, but you believe in external competition as it as us versus them. Talk about that if you don't mind. Sure, I, I have found in um, companies I've worked for, and in and in other companies where uh, typically people maybe in the same position um, might feel like they're in competition, or even be told directly they're in competition. So they. Maybe their boss does a little rank and shame, you know, on on uh, of all your five plant managers who runs the best best plant for cost, who runs the best plant for quality. And um, uh, the other typical thing is sales. I mean, you know, rank your salesman from the most sales to the least sales. And um, I've just never found that that actually creates anything other than uh, motivation that is more individual directed rather than company directed. So you lose that synergy I just talked about and you lose the ability for people uh, to want to win as a team. And uh, companies are team uh, team events, they're team sports. And uh, we, we all win together and we all lose together. And it's not about who sold the most, it's about did we sell the most? And, and one of the things particularly I did, Mark, was Early on, my f- former employer kind of uh, uh, got me to do this because he used to always say I and mine when he talked about his company. And um, and I I made sure that that just rubbed me the wrong way enough. I made sure when we when we started my company um, that I said we and us and ours. And so I never said, you know, anything that implied that it was my company or that I was the one in charge or that I was, I was the one that owned all the assets, even though I did, I made sure everybody felt like this is all of ours because it was, and that's how we all were. Yeah. And they were stakeholders in, in a big way. Understood. I just read a book on George Steinbrenner about how he managed the Yankees. And even though they were successful, it seemed like a very toxic environment because he believed in playing off people against each other in the organization. I kind of felt like they uh, won in spite of themselves. Um, How do you feel about that kind of management style when they play people off against each other, thinking that will get the most out of them um, because they feel uncomfortable? How do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, Mark, I have seen that a lot. I've seen companies be successful doing that. And, um, you know, sports is a good uh, analogy on where that, that tends to you know, be fairly prevalent. Um, but, but just as, you know, just as team, team sports, you know, succeed oftentimes by teams playing well together versus a superstar. I mean, I mean, we could, uh, we could all argue whether the superstar won that for the team or the team won with the superstar kind of thing. Um, and I, and I do see that it works. I've just never found it to be as successful. I've never found, I've never found the multiplier effect of having everybody rooting for each other and working in the same direction and supporting each other as the competition method. And in particular, um, I, I know that, that there's oftentimes I've experienced where I've got managers helping out other managers in another geographic area or another departmental area without my knowledge even of it happening. And making somebody else's job better, or making the company better somewhere else that he wouldn't get credit for on his PL. and and I, I just feel that's that's a powerful thing. The other piece, Mark, that I think is important is, you know, when when I looked at the longevity of our employees, um, almost uh, all of my senior and mid mid level managers, once they joined the company, were there till the end, and and I feel. 
I feel like as a human resource tool, um, by it being us versus them instead of that competitive nature, you're, you're driving a much better, a much more solid foundation for employee retention as well as employee motivation. How many employees did you have? Uh, so, so we were somewhat seasonal because we were in the construction business. So, so we were uh, a typical construction season, about 200. Okay. So it's a, a very nice size business. Uh, one of the questions from the audience is, what are your thoughts on offering lower cost products with lower margins with the hopes of selling the premium or higher cost items with a larger, more profitable margin? I, I hate that idea. And I have done that many times. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, in in my industry, I think like in a lot that just happens, um, you know, I can't, I I can't build, I can't supply all the material for a 60 story office tower in a downtown metropolitan area without selling the low margin crap to get to the high margin important stuff. And so I, you know, I understand it. Um, and I think you just got to look at it holistically. I mean, you, you, you've got to make those decisions on holistically. Is this going to be a good decision for me or am I somehow cannibalizing some part of my business that will not uh, get balanced out on the high end margin? So I, I was asking, I've read this uh, in your book, you um, had talked about competition. Um, competition can be detrimental to the overall goal of the company besides competition having better uh, can the competition have better service or product than yours? And how do you how do you worry about the competition? Like, do you just focus on you being the very best you can be, or do you say, "Oh, we got to provide uh, a lower cost service or uh, a higher quality product"? So, you know, how do you focus on that, or do you focus just on yourselves and not worry so much about the competition? I, I think the key the key point that uh, I was trying to make there was I know there are some people that uh, feel like, well, you just worry about your own company and and uh, all you can do, you don't have to worry. You shouldn't worry about your competition. And, and I know in, in our industry, um, our competition was fairly fluid and, um, and not so uh, transparent sometimes in their uh, their own strategies or um, uh, the way they would operate. And so I, I think for us, it was very important to keep a very close uh, eye on our competition. And now, having said that, um, that did not stop one of our major initiatives was always to um, try and provide uh, value to our customers that was non-traditional in our industry. And so we would, we often sought to do things uh, that may be asked of us or that we would identify that might be valuable to the customers without it being typical of our industry. And and a lot of our competition were very stuck in, this is the way we've always done business. This is the way this industry acts. And and one of our major initiatives was always to try and ignore uh, that paradigm and make sure that we we were doing what created value within a customer's mind, not so much what the industry thought was, you know, our traditional role. Did, did you ever hire people from outside the industry just so you would have a different perspective? Absolutely, we did. Um, you know, there's areas in our industry where we could do that. And um, uh, we would try and be open minded about it. And there was but there were certainly areas of expertise, you know, particularly in operations, um, you know, that we couldn't do that. And so we, we, we would just be careful where we did that. Uh, for the most part, our, our hiring mantra was always, we generally want to try and hire the right person that fits our company and our culture, and we can teach them our business. And, and if they're bright and they're motivated and they're going to work hard, uh, we found that to be almost always true. By the way, did you have any family members who worked in your business? Uh, no, not one. And how do you feel about family working in the in the business? Um, uh, you know, I think uh, many of my best friends are either in family businesses or have brought family into their businesses. So I know it's very common 
Um, and I'm, I'm certainly don't really sway one way or the other firmly that I would always bring business, you know, family in or not. Uh, my wife and I have eight kids. Wow. Uh, didn't bring any one of them in, but mostly because they had other interests and, you know, we supported those other interests. So, um, I would just, I, I know from watching others, I would just, you know, be careful about the burden that usually puts on your family members when you're brought into, you know, particularly dad's company. Um, it, 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 uh, I think it's probably more often a burden on that, uh, child than it is a blessing. Yeah, for sure. I work with, I work with a lot of family owned um, businesses and, uh, and it can go either way in terms of the, um, family members feeling that they're owed an opportunity in the company, some who feel like they have to do it, but they really don't want to do it. I think uh, your generation, my generation, because I think we're about the same age, tells the kids, if you want to do it, great. If you don't want to do it, there's no obligation. Go find your own path. So, And your wife is running a family business with eight kids. That's, uh, that's a family business that never leaves you. So when you go home from the office, you left your employees, but she's got hers every day, right? So um, you lost money in a car dealership you bought with a partner. What did you learn from that failed venture? Because I always like to hear what people learn from failed ventures. Uh, don't get in the car business. Um, <laughs> in, in all honesty, um, so I, I've all my life been a, a car guy uh, and uh, love cars and, and fast cars and all that stuff. And so that's always been fun. And um I had uh, an opportunity with a very good friend and somebody that I did business with uh, to buy a, a Dodge dealership. And, um, and so we did that and we thought it'd be really cool and we'd be selling cars and we both loved cars and we could drive some of their best stuff and drive a new car every month. So it seemed like, seemed like one of those things where, hey, you could do what you love and never work a day in your life, which I don't believe in. <laughs> and um, uh, what what I really found out, Mark, the the bottom line answer to your question is, is that you shouldn't get into an industry you don't know anything about. And um, I I knew a lot about cars. I didn't know anything about uh, retail automotive. And um, uh, we stumbled around quite a bit, and we we frankly made money half the months I owned it, and lost money half the months I owned it. Biggest problem was the losses were a lot bigger than the gains. So. Um, we, we, we got out, I'll tell you, the other thing is we got out later than we should have. I mean, we, it's one of those things where, uh, too often, and I, I know I'm guilty of this is you, you hang on because you're going to turn it around next month or that was a bad year because of X, Y, Z, and this year's going to be better. And we did that over and over and over. And it was a disaster. So you learned how to cut things short when you see they're not working, you are able to give it some amount of time before you uh, turn off the faucet? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I would say there's, I don't know anybody that does it fast enough. I don't think you can cut bait fast enough. I think we almost all are too slow to do that. And the other thing is you got to realize is, you know, I sat there and looked at financial statements for that dealership. I know how much money we were losing. I knew the dollars. What I What I couldn't put my finger on was, was taking up 80% of my time that I wasn't spending on the business that was actually successful, that, that uh, you know, my personal net worth was dependent upon. And so you've got all that valuable time you're not spending somewhere else, either uh, supporting a business or actually growing it. And that was, you know, was that, that lost time probably was more than the dollars on the financial statement. Uh, what's your criteria for a loyal customer and how did you evaluate potential customers before accepting them? Because you talk about that in the book. Yeah, I, I, I make, I think, a, a lot out of how, how much importance we put on customers that were loyal uh, versus customers that were uh, almost completely price sensitive. And, um, uh, you know, for the most part, what we found was we were able to generate greater margins with those loyal customers, not because we could charge them more because they always bought every all of their needs from us, was because we developed relationships with them where our companies worked better together, and there would be there'd be less uh, you know there'd be less inefficiencies 
in service between our companies or less uh, product loss or less uh, overruns or whatever it may happen to be. And so we, we just found those loyal customers, those customers that depended on us for all of their needs in my industry uh, to, to be much more valuable and much more uh, predictable to work with. And, and also found that the, the folks that were, you know, almost all totally price sensitive is that uh, I knew I could go get their work when I needed to. And there were times when, you know, I'd have a gap uh, and have some production capacity and, you know, we'd go get the the cheap work from the the folks that will buy from whoever's lowest. Um, but we did, never found that drove, uh, you know, the efforts for us to find those loyal customers and develop those relationships. You have opinions on pricing and taking on customers that are focused on cost containment. Please share your experience and advice you have to folks here. Yeah, yeah. The, it, it really comes down to making sure, uh, you know, that your company is running as efficiently as possible. You know, one of the things that made us the most money was uh, percent of capacity, percent of manufacturing capacity being utilized. And so we, we were cognizant of that, but we were we, we tried to be careful not to put ourselves in a position where the risk of some of those lower cost, uh, lower margin. Uh, customers and sales weren't endangering where we wanted to go long term because it's so easy to pick up a big job, pick up a big customer, feel good about yourself and you're on your way when when uh, if you can step back, do that 50,000 foot look, you might say this maybe is not exactly the best thing for us or this isn't the best opportunity, even though it'll double the size of this division. This is a short term or this is a a place where investments are not uh, secured or sustainable. Yeah, you had a whole, uh, um, uh, a good chunk of a chapter about that, um, about how you would have had to invest, I guess, in the second plan or expanding your own plan. But when you did the numbers, even though they were promising you pretty good volume, the margins were so thin, it didn't make economic sense. Yeah, exactly. It was, it, it was, a, it was an example of a huge opportunity for us. It would have made us a much larger company, so it would have been, would have it would have looked great top line, and we would have had lots of equipment and lots of exposure out there. Um, that some have been good because people would think, oh boy, he's you know that's a big company, they're really growing. But some of it was also just that risk, and um, uh, we really oftentimes in those kind of situations, and in that one for us, we really didn't have any any kind of guarantee or any kind of. Uh, uh, assurances that that business would continue on in the future. It would. Con- it was in that time. It was a year, annual contract, and so we. Um, it was a hard decision. It was a hard decision to say no to a bunch of sales that would double, double sales in a particular division. But uh, it just didn't feel right, and um, so we backed out. So they were asking you to build a building, but didn't want to sign a long-term lease. <laughs> yeah, essentially that was it, and. Uh, I mean, Mark, I'm sure you know, there's a you know ton of companies you know in different industries, but particularly like the automotive industries, there's a, bo- a bunch of suppliers in the automotive industry that their sales come from, you know, 80, 80 90% of their sales come from yeah. one customer. That would scare the crap out of me. I'm with you 100%. Uh, throughout the book, you mentioned adjusting the target you're shooting up based on circumstances. One of them is selling your business. We had a couple of experts, uh, author experts who do a lot of work in that area, talk about selling the business and mention the need to think about early on along, uh, along with knowing what your future plans are. What's your take on this? Did you feel like you know, when you uh, decide to start this business that you're always thinking about the exit strategy already? What, what's your advice to people about this? Um, I, my advice is to think about exit strategy as soon as you are able. And, um, and, and the, the, you know, the best example of that is private equity is they don't buy a company or a piece of a company without understanding the exit strategy. Now I would hate to, to be in that kind of business because I don't think that, that kind of short-term way I like thinking long-term, but what, when I say you ought to start thinking about it as soon as possible. So I, I had my own company for 17 years. I'm sure for the first six, seven years, Selling it never occurred to me. I mean, all I was focused on was 
get, you know, first year, get to profitability and then start growing it and then start, you know, improving our reputation, improving our capabilities and so forth. And you just, you're just focused on the business. And I think that's right. But at some point, you know, when this business goes from being worth nothing to being worth some, some significant amount, uh, whatever that is, um, you got to start thinking about it in terms of this is, this is now, it's not just my business. It's not just my baby. It, this is an asset. And, and it has some uh, uh, ups and downs to it, like any asset does, like any stock on the stock market. And I think you got to start thinking about what, what would make me exit or when is the best time to exit or how do I minimize uh, you know, the risk of exiting at an untimely uh, event or in an untimely manner. You mentioned that companies shouldn't look at suppliers as adversaries. How did you cultivate a win-win relations with suppliers and how did you uh, utilize them to help you capture and retain business? So, so in our industry, uh, there are a couple of major supplier chains that are absolutely critical to um, uh, not only running the business, but oftentimes quality uh, of our finished product. And um, uh, as a percentage of the, of the unit sales, uh, those two materials typically made up uh, between 45 and 55 percent of the total costs. And so the, those two supplier chains were extremely important. And um, the the old school where I from my former employer uh, would say that you get all those competitors for a certain product, you know, uh, in a series of meetings and you beat the heck out of them until you got the lowest price and you make sure that you've got the best price that they can give you or that's available and so forth. And um, uh, we just took a little different tact in trying to bring them into our business a little bit. And a little bit at a time uh, starts to develop that relationship where I can take advantage of, of superior quality, maybe at a market price rather than paying a premium. Or I can take advantage of uh, deliveries uh, to my manufacturing facilities when there is a supply chain issue, when there's tightness in the market of a supply. And um, those are those are competitive advantages that get developed over time. But but I think the biggest difference is we treated, we tried to treat our suppliers just like we treated our customers. Tried and, and you know for the most part that is that's that's being respectful, you know, treating them uh, as an equal you know, treating them as an important part of the process uh, of, uh, of a sale, you know, wherever it occurs, whether it's at the beginning with a raw material at the end when you're delivering it to the customer. And, and I think it made a difference, particularly with those two things, quality and, and reliability of supply. You write, uh, you write about luck in the book. Luck is always a key part of a business's success. What advice would you have on how to lower the impact luck would have on the success of a business? I, I think I said earlier that you, uh, something about making your own luck, and I and I do believe that. I think that you know, for the most part, uh, uh, bad things happen to people, and they they consider it bad luck. And good things happen to people, and they say, "Look at what a great job I did." And um, uh, for the most part, the luck part to me is about circumstances beyond our control and is trying to minimize the negative impacts of those types of circumstances. And so we all can't control our own destiny, but we, we, we can do two things. We can, we can become aware of them as soon as possible in as timely a manner as possible. And then we can react as soon as possible. To those circumstances to minimize their impact or to take advantage of the impact that uh, that might be available. But I think those are those are the two things that occur to me about those things that you can't control is, is keep the antennas up, gather information, review it off and make sure that you're aware of it as, as quickly as possible. And then not a knee jerk reaction, but certainly, you know, uh, make sure that you're nimble enough to be able to react to it in the best possible uh, manner. Did you make sure that you were able to talk to frontline employees uh, so that no one could color your vision there, you know, put rose colored glasses on you? 
Did you actually go down and talk to the people on the front lines and ask them how things were going? I I feel like I did that a a fair amount. I don't know that I I I, I did it uh, uh, more than most people, but I I I tried to stay in touch mostly because I enjoyed it. I enjoy walking down, uh, you know, and, and talking with the folks on a manufacturing line or, you know, going to, uh, you know, a construction site and seeing our product actually being put in place by our folks and our customers, you know, operations people. So to some degree, I enjoyed that interaction. Um, it's also, it's one of those things kind of like going to industry uh, functions and association meetings. I, I think you'd, most of us would be surprised what you can learn, you know, that kind of management by wandering around thing. Uh, when you show up unexpectedly or without an agenda. Um, uh, but the other thing, Mark, just to comment, is that um, uh, I think I was certainly fortunate not to have managers that would color um, what our workforce was uh, going through or what their issues were, or what the uh, what their concerns might be at the time. I think that there was a pretty open uh, communication about that. And, and I don't think any of my managers ever felt like they needed to color, uh, the, those kind kind of things, whether those messages, you know, were not so pleasant or not. How did you let, how did they know? Cause I've worked with CEOs that didn't even realize that how they carry themselves affected how, whether people told them the truth or not. Like I had a, a couple of clients where the, their top people said, we checked his temperature or her temperature when she came in to determine if we could tell them bad news, how did you make sure that didn't happen? Uh, I mean, that, I mean, that's kind of funny because I know um, I've heard comments from some of the folks that worked for me that, um, you know, they, they could tell if I was having a good day or bad day when I walked through the hallway or, and so we're probably all not very good at hiding uh, how we're feeling or not as good as we think we are. Um, but, you know, for the most part, uh, it's kind of one of those things that I never killed the messenger. Uh-huh. There's, it's not always going to be good news and somebody is going to come in and tell you, uh, you know, something's going wrong and you don't, you don't want them to hesitate, you know? So you want to be, you want to have that receptive nature. And the other, the other part is that team part, that us part is that you don't want somebody to feel like uh, they have a problem or you have a problem. You want everybody to feel like we have a problem. Now let's figure out how to solve it. And so um, I think that's most of it. You have a chapter dedicated to evaluating, identifying, and hiring the right professional service partners, accountants, lawyers, that type of thing. Uh, and I agree, these are super critical hires. What's your process and evaluate? What's your process for evaluating them? How did you go about picking your accountants and lawyers? I think one of the best stories is uh, the my uh, general business attorney who who I've had uh, for. 25 years now and who who actually saw me through a number of acquisitions and then saw me through the eventual sale of my major my my biggest business but um i i actually first met him he was working we were doing a real estate transaction in the my with my former employer he was representing the other side and uh we went through a um went through a real estate acquisition and then a construction project and all the times he was representing uh the other side and so I got to watch him up close and see how he acted. And uh, I was really impressed, even though he was, you know, beating me up half the time. And um, but he but I appreciated, you know, that he was always prepared. He's always on time. He was responsive. Uh, he was fair. Um, but I also saw that, he, you know, he, he fiercely represented his clients uh, interests. And so uh, after that, that entire process and project was completed. I think it took me about three months and I hired him to do uh, a couple of projects and uh, to kind of confirm that that was the right guy. And then he's, uh, he's been around ever since. Um, what's your, and everybody struggles with this question, hiring successful salespeople is a challenge for any business. What's your criteria and what did you learn that helped increase your success rate? It is difficult. And, and I, I would be the first to admit that I may not be, uh, the best uh, supervisor of salesmen. Um, and so I, <laughs> one of the things I made sure I did was uh, make sure we had good, good sales managers, good vice president of sales um, that understood uh, motivating this, those folks. For the most part, we looked for people that uh, were more customer service oriented. 
rather than sales volume oriented. And, um, and, and so typically if somebody came from a commission only industry or a commission only company, uh, it was not very likely they were going to succeed with us. Um, and so uh, we had a kind of a particular model and we tried, tried pretty hard to make sure that they would fit into that model. And, and again, you know, kind of back to the culture of the company, make sure that they fit into that culture of, of how we wanted people to act, how we wanted people to treat each other and treat our customers. You write about evaluating risk versus reward. What's your process for evaluating that? I think I wrote about that mostly to, to try and remind uh, us, fellow, uh, the fellow entrepreneurs and CEOs that might read the book that uh, risk ought to be considered a little more often maybe than we all typically do. And so oftentimes, if you're presented with an opportunity, uh, the, the classic entrepreneur, and I did this plenty of on my own, uh, you know, you, you look at the reward and you consider the reward and you consider the investment and the time and maybe the investment of your people and manpower and so forth. But um, I don't know that that we we balance it enough with risks sometime. And people often think entrepreneurs are risk takers. And that's you know, that is certainly true to a large degree, because we're all putting our houses, you know, up for mortgage and all those kind of things. But um, it doesn't mean that you have to, on a regular basis, undertake unnecessary risk. And it's really, to me, it's about making sure that you kind of at least balance that risk when you're looking at the reward. So is it, in other words, am I likely to get these sales? Am I likely to get these margins? How likely am I to hold on to them? What is the risk of losing them? What is the risk of our competition coming in and matching so forth? Those are those kind of risks that I think need full consideration. So here's my last question to you. You've dedicated a chapter to the best business lessons you've learned. Could you just share one or two of them with us as we close out? Sure. I, you know, and by the way, I think obviously my favorite one is, is the bullseye. And then the first chapter of the book, it talks about uh, it, it talks about where I came up with a business bullseye. And it's really about uh, the typical thing is that you can't hit, hit, hit a target that you don't know where it is. And uh, if you're not defining your target, it's not likely you're going to hit it. And that was that was something I got taught many times. But I, there was there's two things early on. I, I kind of uh, remember wanting to put in the book. One was when I was a teenager working, I had a, a guy tell me uh, essentially to, that I was doing a great job and he was impressed. I was on time you know, and, and put in a full day's work. And he said, she said, you work hard. That's going to make, that's going to take you a long way. He said, you can be smart and you can be lucky, but if you don't work hard, it's going to be hard to be successful. And uh, you need, you need, you need all three, but you need to work hard. And, and I think that's, it's really about just taking your job seriously. It's not, you know, when you have some success, don't, don't relax and don't fall back on your laurels and think that, uh, you know, you're the, you're doing fine. Everything's going, going well, you know, to take some care to make sure that you continue to work as hard every day as you did the first few days when you started your company. Gotta be hungry every single day, right? Every day. Yeah. Or you become complacent and uh, you lose your edge. Absolutely. Jim, I just wanted to uh, tell the people what you were telling me, how many business books a year do you read? I, I mean, I'm guessing um, COVID has made me turn up my production, but I'm sure I read at least uh, one business book a month. And you find that important to your success? I, I, you know, and believe me, there's there's plenty of books where I will read 400 pages and think I got one thing out of it, which doesn't make me real happy with the use of my time. But yeah, I, I really feel like you can't not. Uh, spend the time making sure you're you're uh, up to speed. And, you know, by the way, a lot of times, Mark, it's just reminding you of something you already know. It's reminding you of something you experience. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's right. Or it's put in a different way. So you're like, oh, yeah, I got to remember this. Well, I have to say I got a lot out of your book. And I've gotten a lot out of I'm uh, reading 52 books a year. So I'm getting a lot of good things from all of you. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. I hope people will get your book because it's very practical. You've got great examples in there. And, and it's not written by an academic. It's written by somebody who's actually in the trenches living it day to day, who's put their own assets on the line for this. So again, thank you so much for taking the time. 
thank all of you for uh, listening today. Hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time. Thank you.